Welcome. This is Joanne Tan, owner and brand strategist of 10 Plus Brand, a multiple award-winning brand building and brand marketing full service agency. I'm also the producer and host of the podcast interviews of notables and influencers on 10 Plus Podcast. I'm very excited to have Gary Middlemist today, and I'm looking forward to hearing his adventure of climbing Mount Aconcagua. Gary Middlemist is the owner of Tanius, a stock trading company in California. He's also a friend of mine. Gary recently climbed almost 23,000 feet to the top of Mount Aconcagua in Western Argentina over 13 days and then descended in three days in utterly freezing temperature. Among his 17 members, one was helicoptered down with a broken arm and another with asthma. Every year, an average of three climbers die trying to climb Mount Aconcagua. The mountain is one of the seven summits of the seven continents. Last year, I climbed Half Dome in Yosemite with Gary and some other friends, but Mount Aconcagua is just too daunting and risky to me. Mount Aconcagua's summit elevation is 22,838 feet. In comparison, Mount Everest is 29,032 feet. That's about 6,194 feet taller than Mount Aconcagua. Mount Aconcagua is the highest mountain in the Americas in both the Western Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere and the highest outside Asia. It's about nine miles from Argentina's Western border with neighboring Chile to the East. By the way, it was 70 miles away from the site in the high Andes mountains where the Uruguayan rugby players playing crashed in 1972. 16 survivors resorted to cannibalism as shown in the 2023 movie, Society of the Snow. It's an excellent movie. Janet Mae Johnson, a 37-year-old American mountaineer and a teacher died during an expedition on Mount Aconcagua in Argentina in 1973. 50 years later, in 2023, her camera with a film inside was exposed by melting ice due to global warming. We can still see her last photos of Mount Aconcagua from the films in her camera buried in snow for 50 years. So my question for you, Gary, what made you want to do this life-threatening adventure? That's an interesting question because, um, yeah, it has an interesting provenance. So what, what happened was when I was a kid, when I was 12, um, we had a family friend take me hiking to his favorite place in Southern California. But what how we did it is we we left our, our house, which is like sea level, around midnight, and then we drove up to about 9,000 feet. And then we the very first day, we hiked around 10 miles. So this was a three-day trip. And so that very first day, we we went over 12,000 feet. And I was just 12. And so I was throwing up everywhere, like really bad altitude sickness. Even at the start, I had altitude sickness. 
so it was a really it was a really hard trip but it was kind of life-changing like i remember yeah the first day and then at the end of that first day he said oh you're really slow so tomorrow we need to start at three in the morning in order to be able to make sure we can get there before it's dark and so i remember waking up at like three in the morning and we had breakfast in the tent back before people were that concerned about bears and took off and it was all misty in these really high sierras little little meadows and stuff and i just remember walking in the misty dark with just moonlight anyway it was pretty life-changing for me so that guy that took me um we, we've stayed in touch and when i was scoutmaster in massachusetts um at one point there was around seven kids that said you know we really need to go hike some real mountains You know, the, the mountains here are so small. And so I took them to the exact same place. And one of the one of the kids I took was also 12. And so kind of what happened was this last summer, the guy who had taken me on, on the backpacking trip called me up and said, hey, would you like to come with me to Aconcagua? I really want to hike this. And he's getting he's getting pretty old. He's in his 60s, getting close to 70. And um, he really wanted to give it a shot. And I said, sure, let me call my younger friend too. And so I called the kid that was 12 and I took him to the same place. And so the three of us decided to um, to go up that mountain. And we had a, a group of, we started as a group of nine people. But yeah, three of us were were friends. So, you know, some people have it as their life goal and some people... You know, a lot of people have been training and I just kind of just signed up by chance and signed up my other my other friend. He actually signed up after arriving in Argentina the day before we left to go up the mountain. So he decided like the day before he was going to go and gets to Argentina and tells them he's here. He wants to go up, too. So we were not we were not very prepared. Two of us, you know, the one guy was, but but not this other two. So that, that's how it started. So if I hear you correctly, the guy who exposed you to this severe mountain high altitude climbing when you were 12, now he's in his late 60s and he wants to climb. And you said, okay, he wants you to ask you to join him. And he said, you said, okay. And then you also bought the 12 year old that you bought up to the same mountain when you were the scout master. So like yep. three generations almost. Yes. <laughs> We're, okay. we're three generation of passing on the super secret place in in the Sierras out so of twelve year olds. You don't want to tell us which mountain it was. No, no, it's my favorite place in the world. Oh we're, my we're god, this making me so intrigued. So, did you all three make it? Nope. Who did not? Um, the original guy. The original guy. Once we got to base camp, started having. Well, we had one day where the wind was so strong that it blew like the door off a porta potty, which like flew across the camp and smashed into some guy's tent. And someone was injured from that. We heard a lot of people running around in the middle of the night. And um, but our tents were totally flattened by the wind. And part of it had flattened over this guy's face. And he just could not sleep at all that night. And so we we had to we had to make our first kind of shuttle trip past base camp that following day to get to camp one and just bring a bunch of stuff up. And he was just unable to recover from not sleeping. Now he's really strong, 
Like he he's actually runs faster than I do as a 60 something year old and 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 he works out every day and, and stuff but um the lack of sleep was a problem and then then the next day he started having tachycardia so like his his normal resting heart rate is i think in the 40s and it was he couldn't get his heart below like 140 oh so the um the doctors sent him down and and put him put him on the helicopter so that's primarily due to altitude. Yeah, so your 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 reaction to altitude is kind of unpredictable. It's not it's not really related to fitness, you know. And he has like a fam a family history of arrhythmia. So sometimes people's hearts just freak out. It can't it can't adapt. Um, and then we had a woman who who left like the day before him um, because she got some altitude induced asthma. that um she could not stop hyperventilating and she spent about a day just <laughs> and they they gave her a shot and slowed her down but then she was right back to hyperventilating so they sent her down And what altitude was were you uh, so that, that was base camp is like 14,400 so pretty high i mean a, a tiny bit higher than uh, mount whitney in california but um not getting excessively high but we we had done that one hike up to camp one which was about 16 and a half thousand um yeah i mean struggling to breathe was a thing but it was more like just tired struggling to breathe but i think as your body just starts to create the extra hemoglobin it needs in order to absorb oxygen like Sometimes it works and sometimes it's not working. And people do different things like take medicine for high altitude to like dilate their veins. Um, he was taking that medicine and I was taking that medicine, but you know, sometimes it's a good idea. Sometimes it's a bad idea. It's kind of, you know, it was, it was all of our first time at that altitude. So none of us had gone higher than Mount Whitney before, none of us three. And so it was kind of experimental just to see if you can tolerate it. Mm, oh my god so you slept at al high altitude for how many days you it took you 13 days to climb up and how many yeah. days, how many days were were you camping in base camp one or whatever above 10 well, so you you waited base camp you kind of get to base camp pretty quickly just a couple days to get there And those are kind of long mileage wise, the long hikes. But then you, a lot of it is just you wait around at base camp to let your blood adjust. So you'll take, you'll, some days you'll walk up to the camp one and carry some things. Some days you're just sitting there resting. But a lot of it is just kind of waiting for your body to acclimate. So, and then the other, the other thing you're waiting for is, is weather windows. So you you can't you can't summit every day. I mean, there's if it's super cold or windy and really really windy, then it, it's just too dangerous. So you're you're kind of also at base camp waiting for timing of when you can make it up. So after base camp, there's three more camps: one, two, and three. I mean, they all have different names, but one, two, and three. And you can kind of stay at camp one. Um, but it's better to stay at camp two. There's actual water. There's a water source at camp two. 
camp three, it's just, you're just melting ice and snow and there's not much of it right now. It's kind of dry. And so you really can't, and then you have a lot of other problems at that altitude. So you don't really stay at camp three. So basically you're, you're at base camp until if they see a weather window five days out, then you start moving, you get to camp one, then you get to camp two, you wait there for a little bit and then you try and try and hit that weather window. Okay. So the other, the younger generation of the 12 year old that you, you took on the Boy Scout hike, he didn't make it either. No, he made it. Okay. He made it, but he has been, he has been walking for about two and a half years now. And that that's his job is to walk. So he's 30. Um, but yeah, at first he walked across the country, but he went kind of, he started in Utah, then he went to the furthest northeast point of Washington, then he went down to Texas, then Florida, and then Maine. And then after that, he has started to walk across Europe. But it's, um, so he went from Norway down until the three months expired and they had to um he had to leave for a bit. So he's in process of of walking across Europe right now. And he just was on a break because of the visa thing and decided to do this mountain with us. So he's very, very in shape for walking. Okay. But if he was walking a flat surface rather than high mountains, there's still this elevation issue. Yes. Yeah. So he, he adapted fine. I think the very, the only very hard day for him was the summit day. That was very hard for everybody, unexpectedly hard. Um, but, but yeah, every, for him, every other day was, was fine. I mean, he, he walks a lot. So so why was the summit day hard? It had no comparable precedent on any of the, against any of the other days. So I'd say if, if you were going to rate like difficulty on a scale of one to 10, um, when you're starting the other days, you think, oh, you know, compared to what I've done before, there's somewhere around the three on an absolute level. But then by the time you finish the summit day, you're like, no, every other day is a one. The summit's like 11. It's just, it's incomparably difficult compared to any other day. Because of the height? The primarily because of the elevation. Like I suspect if you had spent three weeks acclimating really high, like at 17,000, um, then it wouldn't be that bad. But yeah, it's a combination of the height, the um, temperature, and the wind, and the lack of water. Well, lack of water is actually a pretty big deal. Lack of liquid water. Well, uh, can't you just eat snow? It's ice. No. Oh. And you can't have a stove to melt ice into water? Well, you, you can't you can't carry that when you're going up to the summit and it's too um that'd be too much energy. Everything takes too much energy. So a main reason people die, um, I mean people fall and die, but a lot of people just die in their sleep. So they they had two recently, one died at base camp and one died at camp three, just sleeping. It's everything just takes too much energy and you are unsure where your body is you because you can't you can't really feel how close you might be and all 
a lot of the problems of the high altitude is everybody gets um, sleep apnea. So that that's what was happening to my friend who brought me too. I was sharing the tent with him at base camp and he would just stop breathing for 30 seconds to a minute at a time. And it was kind of scary. And then he'd like really quickly start breathing again. So everybody was feeling it. Like me at, at camp three, I remember... I remember waking up, not breathing, and I couldn't get my chest to rise. Like I, I couldn't engage that involuntary muscle that would bring breath into myself. And so I panicked and I sat up in the tent, which was a big mistake because just like something like sitting up takes so much energy. It, it takes like 15 minutes just to recover from that. So like if you're going to sit up at that elevation, you got to go slow and you got to think about it and you got to like use your muscles really slowly, but doing it in a panic, then that caused me to like hyperventilate for like 15 minutes. Then I couldn't get my heart rate down. And then it was really hard to go back to sleep. But then I, I would lay down again and my chest wouldn't go again. And then I would like get on my side and then my chest would start moving. Um, didn't feel like I was getting much in there, but I've, yeah, I remember the original question, but yeah, you can't, there, you, there's no excess anything, even like peeing, going to the bathroom, you have to plan and, and it will take many minutes to recover from that or taking a drink of water takes a long time to recover from because you have to stop breathing to drink that water. So no, you can't, I mean, even putting your backpack down and getting a stove out and then breaking ice it would you would be totally exhausted my goodness oh it's because of that um lack of oxygen and the yeah and altitude and the everything takes more energy yeah when the oxygen oxygen is so low level yeah, and say, I mean, we spent, there's a good seven days where you don't even see ants. Like, there is nothing alive. And there's good reason for that. You're, you feel like you're in outer space. You don't really feel like you're on the planet anymore. It feels like you're closer to the space station than you are to, to Earth. But yet, like, I'll give you one more example, like a weird thing that you wouldn't think about. So, they on the packing list of stuff to bring they put like a pee bottle and i'm like why why do you need a pee bottle can't you just pee on the ground and like well it's for nighttime like you you can't go outside the tent in the night and i said well why like well it's way too cold you would just like die so okay so we only actually went outside the tent in the night the first night before we got very high but just the complications of peeing in the night that you don't think about is say you have to go at like midnight and you have to go to the bathroom and you pee in this bottle then what do you do with it like if you keep it in you you can't open the tent and get to where you can pour it out really so you have to keep it in the tent but then it will freeze and it freezes solid so then you have to spend the entire day the next day trying to warm it up enough to empty it so you can use it the next night and so you have to like have it right next to your skin. So then you're using all your energy to warm this pee bottle so you can dump it out. It's ridiculous. And like even inside your sleeping bag, which is what most people would do, you keep it inside your sleeping bag with you to keep it liquid. It, it would freeze in there too. 
And you're keeping a lot of stuff inside of your sleeping bag, like all the water that you're going to use to drink next day, because you've had to melt it the day before, you, you have to keep that liquid. So you have to keep all your water inside the sleeping bag. You have to keep like parts of your shoes inside so you can put them on because they, they can get really hard if if they get really, really cold. And then like all your batteries for any electronics, you got to keep in your sleeping bag and you got to keep the pee bottle in your sleeping bag. So you have a lot of, you have a lot of stuff in your sleeping bag. So a lot of things you that you didn't think you'd have to think about, actually they all take a lot of effort and energy. And so sometimes like besides walking, the only thing you might be able to accomplish for the day is like eating, breathing, walking, go to the bathroom and then like a big project would be rearrange something in your backpack. And like, that's all you can do. There's, there's no extra stuff that you can do in the day. Oh my goodness. So all these stuff in your sleeping bag are being warmed up by your body temperature. Yeah. And, but you got to eat to that your your body is being used for warming up all that stuff and warming up your heart and keep yourself going the next day. What do you eat? How much food do you carry? You have to carry lightweight, right? And a pea bottle. I was thinking, why can't you just carry lots of pea pea bottles so you don't have to? If they're frozen, they're frozen. But then yeah. that's weight. Yeah, then you'd have to carry a frozen pea bottle. So. <laughs> um yeah i mean food is a food is my big problem on here i i do not know what was happening with the food i it's it's a sensitive topic but for the the seven days that we were going on the mountain from base camp up um i estimate we we're eating about 300 calories a day maybe 400 only yeah yeah why so zero, zero protein we didn't have any protein um i think the guides were stealing it so yeah we we it, it was it's an issue i mean part of part of the thing that's complicated about these trips is you don't know what you're getting you're in a foreign country and you're not in control of the process whatsoever and you're in a place where people get sick or they die and, you know, there's accidents and then there's like maybe not accidents. And um, yeah, we carried a lot of food because I was carrying it and it was heavy because I was carrying it and we would move it from like camp to camp. But like there was there were days like on summit day, our breakfast was two chocolate biscuits like the size of a Trist's kit they weren't even chocolate they were chocolate flavored zero lunch and when we came down from the summit after about 15 hours of walking um we had each one of us shared well so each four of us shared one top ramen with no seasoning so each one of us had like a bite and a half of top ramen so the, the I have a lot of complaints about how this this hike was organized, um, but I the other groups, the other expeditions going up were very well fed, but um, ours was starved, and I I kind of think, you know, I 
I really did not like our main guide in particular. He did a lot of kind of underhanded things, but I think he was selling off our food to the other expeditions. Oh my goodness. Uh, you wouldn't know before you got there that your Sherpa, that they're the guide, the Sherpa, right? Would Well, I mean, those would be porters, but yeah, I mean, these are just regular Argentinians. You yeah. pay them for their service of carrying weight and they end up stealing your food. You pay them to guide you. They're, they don't carry any weight. They, they just, you carry the weight. So um, the food you carried all the way up there and when it's time to eat, they're not there anymore. Yeah, they, they would make the food, they would prepare it. But yeah, you carry the food in like this, everybody's carrying food in big bags of stuff. But um, yeah, when it would be time to eat the food, there was very little to none. Oh gosh. You so it was, yeah, in no protein. Like like one of the days we had a soup that was yellow from the sulfur coming out of the mountain. So it was straight the water coming like, you know, around noon, the, the ice starts to melt. And so you can get these little streams. And so they collected water, but it was full of sulfur. And I had this like, small bowl of soup with five lentils in it like lentils are small and these are five and my my friend got zero in his i i don't understand how we can carry so much food up there and be eating you know maybe 15 lentils between us it, it was ridiculous did you ask well it didn't occur to me at the time until we got so high and it just got worse that um we're like yeah this was really bad you know it was like slowly getting worse and worse and then on summit day when they explained yeah they um don't have any lunch we have nothing that we can even carry for lunch um we're like this is crazy crazy and then we come down and like that's all we got is like no season top ramen um yeah then then it really was hitting us yeah something is really wrong here so it was it was slow. The food was slow to get worse and worse, and then it became nothing. The other thing that was really telling is when we finally got all the way down to base camp, um, they bring out this plate of meat that's like two steaks, and um, the guides took one and a half of them the, between the three guides and then passed the half a steak along to the seven of us. So we each got like one bite. So... That that was more like they yeah they they're definitely doing something wrong, um when when I saw that happen. Well, I'm just glad you survived. Even though you came back, you look obviously much thinner. Oh, yeah, I lost lost ten pounds. Good lord. Okay, so now question: How much preparation and practice did you need to prepare for this climb and for the altitude sickness? Um, almost everybody in my group had gone up Kilimanjaro, and one of them had gone up Denali um, before. Actually, the guy who went up Denali did not make it up this hike. I mean, partially, maybe lack of food. Like, I don't know. But at about 45 minutes left, he's like, screw this. I have kids at home. This is not worth it to me. It turns around. And he was he was one of the stronger hikers. But the... um. Yeah, a lot of people had prepared for many years. I was just 
not very prepared. I I, I like long walks. Uh, I can do 25, 28 miles in a day occasionally. So I've been prepared for that. This was not so much a long walk, though. It was just like when you are walking, it was generally pretty short and pretty steep and um, not much air. I did prepare also by trying to like do a lot of sprinting to try and get my heart to go really fast and kind of simulate lack of air. But I, I would say of everybody on that mountain that I ever met there, I was probably the least, I had done the least amount of preparation. So there, most people do prepare. I, I would advise preparing. Hmm. But those who were prepared, more prepared than you, not necessarily made it to the summit. Yeah. Altitude sickness, coldness, and physical condition, whatever. Okay, well, in hindsight, do you regret you didn't prepare enough? Well, I don't live, I don't live at a very high altitude, so it's kind of hard to figure out what to do. Um, things that would have helped, I mean, Kilimanjaro would have helped, but it's so much easier that it's not that comparable. I mean, it would have helped to see like, hey, what? how do I feel at this altitude? I mean, it's much lower and you're there much shorter. Um, but there, to give you like our porter to person ratio, each, so there, there are porters that carry things, but it was one porter for four people. Kilimanjaro is four porters for one person. So it's 16 times more porters in Kilimanjaro than it is for Aconcagua. So there's a pretty different experience. I mean, the only, I could have run a lot more, it would have been good preparation, but nothing really, I don't know. I mean, my main problem at the top was just being delirious. Um, I was disoriented, dizzy, delirious, could take maybe four or five steps before having to stop and dehydrated. Because again, on that summit day, your main goal is to keep your water liquid. And so you can't put it in your backpack. It, it freezes really fast. It was negative 30 degrees. So you're basically strapping bottles of water all over inside of your coat and hoping they don't freeze. And if it takes too long, then you run out of water or it freezes and then you're in trouble. So I'm, I'm a pretty heavy water drinker. So, um, I, I was fairly dehydrated by the time I got up to the top. So I, I don't know how to prepare better for that. I mean, knowing about these things would have been good, but I, I went in pretty blind. Oh my God, you're, you're a risk taker. Um, now I have three questions. Number one, have you, has the word death ever occurred to you? <laughs> Did you ever worry that you may die? Number two is, when you say porters, you mean guides? Uh, no. no, they're diff different people. The porters you never actually meet. They just pick up stuff. Oh. And part of the day, usually when you're not there, and they transport it to somewhere else. So they just transport your tent, your equipment, your weight. Yeah, like they might carry the stoves and the gas and like all the community stuff. Yes. That That's needed. Yeah. Guide actually they led the way right okay the guides are with you and make sure you don't you stay on a trail don't fall on anything make sure your crampons are okay and like 
if you have a major problem, they try to radio in and get you off the mountain. So they're they're with you the whole time. They don't carry your stuff at all. Okay. But um, they okay. they do cook the food. All right. So before I get to the third question, which is about the team, okay, H have you ever thought you might die? Um, I was a little bit concerned after I heard about there was like a twenty-eight-year-old American that had died this year. Um, I think he just died in his sleep at Camp Three, and it was after summiting and coming back down. So, the the sleep apnea episodes did scare me because you you just it's just binary and somewhat random from what I can tell that you you stop breathing and don't start again so I, th I think our um the yeah the first night at camp three I was a little bit nervous I was I was more nervous about starting to summit but I had no idea how hard it was going to be again like the first all the other days do not prepare you for the difficulty of the summit day there's it's it's really not the same thing it's like going from walking two miles a day to running a marathon it's not really preparation so didn't have a good sense of how bad or how hard it, it could be so i was a little bit nervous about that i mean not not terribly so i mean but i just did have have a good idea what the range of things could be but yeah, I was the the only thing I was really worried about was dying in my sleep. And there was only two days I was a little bit concerned about that when we were at Camp Three. But um, the rest of the time, I, I felt more or less okay. Camp Three is what's the elevation? Um, it's right below twenty. Okay. It's like nine nineteen eight or something. Okay, you said sleep apnea. You know, normally. At sea level, more or less, people have sleep apnea, uh, uh, not induced by elevation, not induced by lack of oxygen. So if you went up that height above 15,000 feet, okay, uh, even if you never had sleep apnea at sea level, you would develop sleep apnea at that altitude? Quite possibly. Because my my friend who got helicoptered down, he did not have it at sea level. He'd never had it. And he definitely was having it at 14,000. It's the pressure plus the lack of oxygen plus the fatigue and unpreparedness of the muscles, the involuntary muscles. That yeah, I'm I'm really really not sure, but for for me, when I would stop breathing, I couldn't even engage the involuntary muscles. So, what, what do you mean I, you cannot engage? I couldn't get when I, I woke up, and I could not even force my chest to rise to take breath in. Oh. It's like I was, it had stopped breathing, which had woken me up, and then I'm like, okay, I need to breathe again, and I couldn't even get it to turn on, you know. And then that's when I panicked and I like stood, sat up really fast. And that that did allow me to get my chest to go again. But I, I'm not sure of the mechanism. I think it's my guess is it's slightly different than regular sleep apnea. Right. Just from my experience of like, I can't even voluntarily get my breath to go. So I, I think it's quite a bit more severe for sure than than regular sleep apnea. 
right? If you cannot involuntarily engage and voluntarily engage, that is scary, okay? So if you yeah. can neither of that. And that obviously uh, give you sleep deprivation and sleep deprivation plus fatigue and all that gives you hallucination or is hallucination inevitable outcome of altitude sickness by itself, whether you slept mm -hmm. enough or not. People get like what's called hypoxia um, where they get, they, they start to, I guess, get really giddy and like I think that's the most common cause of death on Kilimanjaro is people just leave, leave their tent in the middle of the night and just go wander off and fall off something. Um, I didn't see anybody getting that. I think those people, I think honestly, anybody who is prone to hypoxia just doesn't go up that high because they they kind of go crazy a little bit lower. Um, I'm not prone to it. I, I've done a lot of diving and I think it's a similar mechanism. If you go really deep diving in the ocean and you and you don't feel drunk at like 100 feet, um, I think that's a, a reasonable test for how you're going to react to high elevation hypoxia. But yeah, those, those were like, you just kind of aren't thinking very clearly. What I was feeling at the top uh, was just more delirious in terms of my vision wasn't processing very correctly. Like I think my thoughts were still fine, but vision was very fragmented. So just scanning my eyes across things, it'd be more like snapshots of stuff rather than continual visual processing. And you do kind of get into your own mind of like very obsessive, all I really need to do is walk. But I wasn't feeling like I was going to do anything crazy or that I had like lost sense of self or sense of what I was supposed to be doing. Like I wasn't going to turn around and go the wrong way on the mountain. Like that, that'd be something that somebody who had hypoxia would be doing. So I knew which way was up and I knew which was down. I knew why I was there. Um, it's just, your body just gets overwhelmed and none of it. I mean, the weird thing for me is I've done that before. Like if I try and ride my road bike more than like 120 miles, I get like what I would call like fatigued induced delusional where like my body is so excessively tired that it kind of like messes with my mind and it goes somewhere else. This is not so much that you could feel your body tired. I think it's more like in normal elevation, your body spends like 5% of its energy just like living and your brain working and breathing. And up there, it's like 95% of its energy on just the basic autonomous tasks of keeping yourself alive. So I think it was like it getting so tired of like doing that, the autonomous tasks that that kind of would trigger this the same kind of delusion that normally fatigue would. But yeah, it wasn't so much muscular fatigue. Like the climb is very hard, but it's not, it's so long and so slow. It's more, you take three steps, your legs aren't tired. You just can't breathe. And so I measured my blood oxygen. It was 60% at oh. the top. I mean, it took. Dangerous. Yeah. So, and that's, but I think the oxygen content is 40%. So the, if you had not acclimated at all, the blood oxygen would have been around 40%. So that was a testament to having 
acclimated some. But yeah, watching it watching it drop was interesting. I, I made I made several measurements and just watch it go lower and lower and lower. And you're like, yeah, that's normally you'd be in a hospital if your blood oxygen was sixty percent. So that yeah, a lot of it is just really all the involuntary unknown stuff that can happen to you at those elevations. You just don't know until you try it. And some people are less impact, some people more impact. All right, here's a bigger question, okay? You, you're a very intelligent person, okay? You know you are pushing the envelope. You know you could be dead if you just keep watching your blood oxygen level keep, keep decreasing. There, there is a threshold level that beyond which it's fatal. So this is psychological question. Okay. Well, are you gambling? Are you, this is extreme risk. Mm. <clears throat> it's some, but um, I, I think it's acceptable. I mean, one, I'm not terrified of death in any way. It's, it's an outcome. I mean, it's going to happen to you anyway, any, regardless. But yeah, it's not it's not something I approach with terror. At least I, I try to make I try to make it so that fear has a rational but small impact on my behavior. You know, and I, I don't I don't really like it when people are so driven by not risk taking that they don't do much either in their career or in their life, whatever. Um, so, and like my, my job is very much based on intelligent risk-taking. I, I think, I mean, I'm not disregarding risk, but you can't, you can't let that be so dominant that you don't see what you, you can't weigh it against the gain. I mean, I think like, honestly, some of the most dangerous things we do is really driving our cars in rain and snow on some of these freeways, like, that that to me feels also quite dangerous. So I did I did measure climbing this mountain is about as much risk as all the driving you do in your entire life. You have about as much risk as that. So it's yeah, it's it's there. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, people do help you out. There are a lot of people on the mountain. Is everybody's trying to hit the same weather window. So say in a week, there'll be six days where there's nobody summiting and one day where a hundred people are trying to get up the thing. And so you're never really alone. So they they do have, I mean, the helicopter can't get to the top. It can, in like in good weather, get to camp two. But I saw them drag two people off the mountain that if there were nobody around, they would have died. So, and then I heard of one in the night where some woman tried to climb from camp two straight to the top and back. And after 24 hours, she was only halfway back down to camp three and somebody randomly found her as they were headed up. And um, yeah, she was almost dead. She And that was two days before we summited that that happened. And then, yeah, on our way down, we saw some woman, she was just laying on the ground, um, refused to move and she was very delirious and you know, they, they, they helped her get down. So yeah, that there, if there was nobody to help you at all, then a lot more people would die on the thing, but 
so many people being on there is actually does make it safer. So your your actually biggest risk really is the silly sleep apnea die in your sleep when nobody can see. So that that's kind of why that scared me the most. Right. But it's because of the altitude, because of the you know, coldness, because of the, the physical reaction to the altitude. Okay. Whew. Now, uh, which route did you take to ascend the summit? Is it the north from the north or from the south? I heard that the, from the north, it's a, a little easier than from the south, which has a Polish uh, glacier. Yeah, there is a Polish route. We actually hiked up to see the Polish route. Um, and while we were standing there, we saw a um, avalanche and we actually made a video of it. So an avalanche came right off where the Polish route was and like wiped out this whole section. It's pretty nuts. So no, um, very few people go up the Polish route. Um, even none of our guys had ever gone up it. They say it's it's not hard, it's just risky. Yes. And um, so there's like some technical parts, maybe not difficult, but I mean, if you, if you have to sit there and worry about a random glacier coming and hitting you in the head, um, that's that's not very appealing. Of course, of course. So I mentioned about this uh, American woman, uh, Janet uh, May Johnson. She went with a group of, I believe, more than 10, and they hardly knew each other. And it was not a good beginning. And when uh, the, so at least two people died, she's one of those. And actually, murder was not ruled out because mm. there were some of the members hallucinated as if hearing, you know, like big construction machines are making noises there. Of course, not even an ant is there. There's no construction machine. But but that's the one of the survivors recalling that they were just hallucinating. Okay, uh, and she. Uh, nobody knows how and why she died, but there were traumas to the head. Don't, don't know. Okay. Uh, so here, the question is, did you know everyone well on your team before the trip? What was the team dynamic during the entire adventure? That I'm not sure I want to publicly talk about some of that, but um, I knew the three guys. So the three of us knew each other very well. Um, the the actual... The three generations of scouters. Yeah. And there were another, there was two other people that knew each other well. And nobody else knew each other. I would say it really depends on like your guide and your outfit. So like if you were with one of the very expensive or very responsible guide companies and like you have like bathrooms at every camp and things like that then your 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 team is not under that much pressure but if if you are being starved like we were then your team is under quite a bit of pressure and and it actually becomes like a team versus guide dynamic at some point we at the end we just mutinied we're like we're not listening to any of you guys anymore so don't even talk to us um, because I think they were actively making it more dangerous and I think they were doing it for fun. I mean, the, yeah, I don't want to get too, uh, I have a lot of reservations about, about talking too much in detail, but it was, it's very, 
I'm always fascinated how kind of group dynamics play out, especially among groups of men in difficult situations. And it was actually super fascinating on this one. I'd say a lot of the initial dynamics did not last very long. Um, how you initially thought who you thought was going to like be in charge versus other people taking more passive roles. And um, it, it morphed very quickly and then it gelled very hard. I will say one one of the group members had no self-preservation sense whatsoever. Um, he was rude. He was demanding. He was very petty. And he was also very small. And um, he got a little bit hurt. And if if things had gone really crazy, like he would have been the first one eaten, right? So it it was interesting. I mean, overall, our, our group did bind together and work together very, very well. Um, but yeah, there was definitely one guy who did not understand that we're kind of in a crazy situation in a foreign country where he could be thrown off a glacier and nobody would care. And nobody would ever think that it was murder or anything. So yeah, I can I can imagine some crazy things happen. It it kind of depends. It's interesting because people are, you know, the group is from all over the world, people people coming in and you know they have different cultures and stuff. And it's interesting to see how it played out. Um but yeah, it was like it was it was everything was like in high speed. It was very, very fast how how things would evolve. Hmm. So did you have any say in organizing your team or the guide just put randomly people from different corners of the world into okay this is the team let's go together um it wasn't i mean it was the expedition company management that like put the team together and assigned them the guides oh. would you if you had the chance to do this again if you wanted to do this again this is a hypothetical question would you uh hire guide like you did this time hmm it's an interesting question i would um i would hire i would do it more one-on-one -on -one. i'd hire like a personal guide um you can do it that way it's just a little bit more complicated logistically but if you want to control the experience which i would be more interested in um you i would actually interview the guides and try and hire an independent one i i think we just had really really bad luck of of guides like our main guide did not speak english he was the only guide on the entire mountain that did not speak english i speak spanish really well so that helped a lot but how can you guide for 21 years a bunch of Americans mostly up a mountain and not bother to know a single word of English. I mean, his, he just really didn't care is, is why. So, yeah. And so even if you do a one-on-one -on -one interview, you surrender your life to this more or less a stranger because you can only yeah. do you have to you it's a chance it's a big chance it, he could you know 
Yeah, that was that was part of the interesting feeling that you you are putting a lot of trust in some random person's hand. And I mean, I guess your your surrendering of life on a one to one is actually probably more extreme since there's no other regular customers around you. But my problem with the guides is they have a certain way they like to do things that in trying to get them to do anything other than that way is really hard like and i mean this is why i would never climb everest is there you know they want everybody to do it exactly the same way like they want you to wake up at the same time everybody to climb at the same time and then you have like you know a hundred people in a row trying to climb this mountain and this happened to us like right before a sketchy spot we were stopped for an hour and a half because you know three people in front of us were afraid to go over this little cliff that you have to go over before you can get onto the snow. And they were just like freaking out. And like our guide were like, won't let us try and pass them. And we're just sitting there running out of water, getting cold and waiting. And, you know, that's where a lot of danger comes in is these like, is these traffic jams. And, you know, I might suggest is one-on-one and say okay if everybody in this camp is leaving at 4 a.m like i want to leave at three or i want to like do something else right so to, to kind of avoid these problems but you know they're i mean the guides are doing this a lot for social reasons like they will just talk to the other guys the other things and like once we stopped in a cave for over an hour on the way down and we are all out of water by now and all just want to kind of go home and go back and like get some food, which was the top ramen. But no, the guy was like talking to his friend and didn't want us to leave. And we we're eventually like, no, we're, we're done. Like talk to your friend some other day. So I would try to control that experience a little bit more. And I don't know if it's, I mean, I hear like Denali and Kilimanjaro are completely different experiences, but this was very much, you know, you feel like the the tag along, like the unwanted tag along to the, these guys that are kind of just hanging out with each other. Mm -hmm. So um, my next question was, what kind of food did you carry? Well, it doesn't matter. They were stolen, <laughs> but if, if they were not stolen, what would you recommend? High protein? Or I'd recommend things that you can eat when it's super cold. So not like bread products, especially like biscuit things that are going to like freeze solid. Um, things with sugar, but not, not exclusively. Like what would have been nice if we even had like peanuts or something, which we didn't. I mean, we pretty much exclusively had like weird types of biscuits and um random dinners mm. that sometimes were terrible i mean they were like freeze-dried ones we had a freeze-dried dinner once on the way up that was pretty terrible we had we had something that was um we had like some lentils with pumpkin one day that nobody could eat either it was it was uncooked because it's really, you can't really boil stuff for very long up there. So the lentils are very hard. The pumpkin was very hard. I don't know. I mean, I guess I would take like salami and cheese. Like there's nothing wrong with that. You get like a stick of salami and you cut it off and some cheese and you cut that off. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, I definitely saw other people eating stuff like that, but. Okay. So freeze dried, you got to boil the water and then put the water in the freeze dried black bag. And, but at that altitude, it takes a long time to boil water, right? Well, no, it just doesn't get very hot. I don't know what temperature it is when it boils, but it's not very hot. And so when you put it in the bag, it, it just doesn't cook the stuff very well. Okay. Now, uh, when you are kind of a uh, deliric or hallucinating, do you know that this is triggered by the altitude, or does your brain still have something to tell you? This is uh, my brain is being tricked by the altitude, or do you have any cognitive control over your hallucination or or delirium? Personally, I'm I'm pretty aware. Um, I've I've been in this like delirious hallucinatory state one, two, three, four times, four times. Um, either triggered by exhaustion, dehydration, lack of sleep, and this one was altitude, and they they all kind of feel the same to me, where I can tell my my sensory perception is just gone, gone awry. So that's what it feels like when I get in this state that like my sensory inputs are just all wrong, but my, my mind seems to still know what I should do and where I should go. I, I don't think that's, I don't think it's the same for everybody because once me and my friend were both dehydrated and he was definitely doing things like walking the wrong way. You know, we we had to get to the water. It was going to take a couple more hours, and he was walking in ways that were not going to get him to water. But I was always aware that yeah, we really needed to get to the water, even though my, you know, I could tell I was not wholly there either. But my mind seemed to still know what to do and be able to get my body to do that. But I, I, yeah, I think people experience it differently. Okay, so a lot of it depends on weather. If you are unlucky and it's storming there, windy, you could wait for a week or two weeks and still there's not an opening. Yeah. And you would just turn back, go home, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll concoct with that. That's not super normal. I guess they said last year, very, very few people made it to the top. And even the expeditions before us that did December, um, they had very few, it was like a 5% success rate or something. Um, yeah, I mean, you can do it. You strap on the crampons and you strap on all your clothes and you slowly make it up. I, I mean, I'm sure there's times when you can't do it. But um, yeah, I mean, other mountains like Denali, for example, is um, much, much more weather dependent. Like you can you can wait there for a week and you just might not get a window. So we actually I actually had a friend, well, a friend of the husband of a friend of my wife who died on Denali. Just cold weather. I don't remember exactly what it was that killed him, but you know, it, I do remember it was weather related. But sometimes you get like great, nice, warm days and you get right up these things. So it is the other kind of thing that's interesting, which I didn't realize before, is you can't really 
bragging about these things might be a little bit useless because everybody's experience is very different. So you could have somebody go up the same mountain during a season when there's hardly any snow and everything is super nice and the weather is very cooperative and your guides are really great. You guys might even carry your pack for you. Like I saw some of that happening, not our guides, but um, I mean, so like, like, oh yeah, I guess the youngest person up here was nine years old. Maybe that could happen. Right. Or you have like the opposite where there's snow starting at base camp and you have your crampons on for seven days in a row and you never get a weather window and it's negative 40 all the time and the wind's 50 miles an hour. Like, no, a nine year old's not going to be doing that. So saying you climb the mountain, it really depends like um, how it goes. And, um, you know, people can get up Denali sometimes. with they just luck out and they might not be that skilled but it was nice and sunny and they actually got a good view and they get really skilled people try and it's just like terrible weather so yeah you can't it's it's hard to judge i mean unlike mount whitney you can say i get up i made it up mount whitney and pretty much everybody who goes up mount whitney has a very similar experience in the summer so you can know what everybody else experienced but these really tall mountains there's a, a huge degree of variability both in year, time of year, season, guides, things that can go wrong. So yeah, it's, it's, um, I did not realize that before, before going up that it's a very inconsistent experience. Right. So you could be thinking this is the clear day or no wind. You started day like that and then halfway to the peak, all of a sudden there is a storm and you, you there's no visibility and there's blizzard. you 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 lose your way down i mean uh, yeah i mean you, you i assume you bring camp no you can't carry that stuff not on not on the summit day then what you happens you have a very strict turnaround time like i think two o'clock or something if you've not made it to the top even if you're like 10 minutes away by two o'clock you just got to turn around go down So you, you have to force yourself, even though you're like 50 feet from the summit, you need to force yourself down. Pretty much. You, because I think they say 80% of the fatalities are on the way down. And it's just people starting down too late or you're tired. I mean, it's a like 3,200 foot that you have to climb down. That's very, very steep and um, really easy to slip. In fact, the day after we came off the summit is when one guy, the older guy that was with us, slipped, fell, broke his arm, and they had to stick him on the helicopter after coming down. So coming coming down is 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 a dangerous part. And a lot of it is, yeah, if you if you get up too late, you're you're increasing your risk quite a bit. But yeah, and normally you're not going to get a huge change of weather in the day that's unexpected because everybody they have these radios and they're always calling in to the the weather service stuff and they, they can see what's coming. And Aconcagua is fairly dry, so you're not gonna a surprise snowstorm is is pretty uh, unlikely. It's um it's a very dry desert. Okay, so did you bring your compass? Does GPS like uh the the what do you call that, uh, the navigation satellite device? Did you use that? Were they useful? No, you wouldn't use any of that stuff. You just, it's very clear. You just are going up a hill you know, and there's tons of people. Okay. 
So uh, how much of it is your inner confidence and willpower and determination? And how much was it? How much of it is your luck? I'd say, um, hmm. I mean, it's it's hard to say because everything except the summit day is so much different than than the last day. So, the last day, whether or not the weather is going to be good, that's a large luck component, right? So, if it's bad weather, then you definitely have to rely on your internal determination quite a bit. And if it's good weather, then you'd have to rely on it, but not to the same extent. So there's a lot of luck on the weather, I'd say. And that 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 can make the mountain very easy, not very easy, but doable or extremely difficult. So I'd say a lot of it is luck. I mean, decide if if you decided to climb a mountain like that then you're you probably have enough mental fortitude to get to the top probably but um yeah the the, the final day is is very random what do you mean random if it's going to be good or not i mean if yeah. if it's really good you could get before i was thinking maybe you know some of my family could do this before the summit day like I would like to bring my kids up here sometime, but after the summit day, like no, no, there's too much. Um, it's a little too um, luck-based risk that's going on where I don't think I'd want to bring my children on it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I take them to Kilimanjaro. That, that's what I actually wanted to do next month, but um, I think we're gonna punt that to the summer. Okay. It factors without uh, outside your control. That's the part. Yeah. So you you it took you thirteen days to climb up, three days to climb down, and you said climbing down is harder than climbing up. Tell us why. Well, it's more dangerous, and it's just from the summit part. It's more dangerous getting off the summit than than it is getting up. It's just because you're tired you're hungry, you're cold, you are thirsty, and there's no real trail. It's just you take steps and you can slip. Like I saw a guy right in front of me, actually two people in front, two, two people in front of me, a heavy guy. On the way down, he slipped on this glacier and just started sliding. And it could have just kept sliding and sliding, but the guy in front of me, which was actually my the friend was 12 so now he's 30 you know we just grabbed him you know grabbed him by his hair and um kept him from sliding down the glacier and a bunch of people came and like held him to get back up and he like totally ripped right through his pants and and everything so like it's just you can have random you're tired you just want to go sleep um and like the guy on our our expedition who on the way down he just fell and broke his arm just I think he was just like lack of food and fell backwards, put his hand down wrong, broke it. So yeah, it's just, it's just tiring to get down and you, you're like, you just want to kind of get back to Mendoza and eat ice cream and steak and pizza. And that's all you're really thinking about. You're going probably faster than you really should. 
if you're going to go safely. And it's a bunch of guys with testosterone, like, hey, how fast can I run down this mountain sometimes? Right. So, yeah, get, getting down did did seem kind of more like dangerous in terms of the terrain. And your internal drive to get down to the you know, bottom as soon as you can. That Yeah, going up is like, you know you have to go slowly to acclimate. When you're going down, you're like, I could walk out of this mountain. It's 20 miles, but I could do it right now and just walk all night long. And that's where your head is. So like, I want to walk out of here. I want to get down low. I want to take an actual shower, um, drink some water that is not that water, and um, eat real food. So it's kind of like this... I must get out of here type of mentality. So yeah, a little sketchy. Yeah, that adds more risk, actually. Okay, so yeah. top of the mountain, what did you see and how did you feel when you reached the summit? So my summit experience was, again, as part of this was this deliriousness that kind of prevented me. And the other thing is like, I had not decided years ago I was going to do this. So I didn't feel like this victory feeling that you might if you like win the Super Bowl or something. You know, I, I'm still kind of processing, actually. I'd say something that was kind of interesting was when, when we could see the end and we were told it was like 45 minutes away, my thought was like, oh my gosh, I, I'm not sure I can last 45 minutes. Like, that sounds like a long time. And then the the kid I brought, I'm not sure he wants his name mentioned, so I can say, but he just decided, he was walking behind me. He's like, Gary, I'm just going to count every step you take and just take 100 steps. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can't take 100 steps. Like, that's a lot of steps. So I would kind of cheat and like do small ones sometimes but you're wearing these huge boots that are like ski boots they're really big they're like double boots they're uh, they're exhausting to wear honestly they're, they're they're really heavy and you have no ground feel so you're always sliding backwards but if if he had not like counted me through it um i don't think i don't think i would have gone it was it was a good thing to kind of take my mind off all the other issues of going that's I, I was feeling some sense of victory i will say like through parts of it but not like the giant aha at the top like at the at the top literally you pull yourself over the rock at the top and you just lay down right there you're you are no longer going to be standing and nobody is standing of like the customers like everybody does the same thing they pull themselves over and you are on your back like you don't even have the energy to like cover your face from the sun that's burning your face you just lay there and you're there like good like 10 minutes and kind of moving your head around a little bit and then like you get the energy to sit up and then you might get the energy to stand up and like look around a bit but um that then you take a couple pictures that aren't very well planned out and then you get back down so it was weird it's like you, you kind of flop onto the top of this mountain so uh, yeah i'm still i'm still trying to to figure out what i what i think about it um i'm not sure i'll go that high again um yeah i don't i don't i don't know it was it i'd say the thing i did think a lot about that um 
that was a rugby it was a football team right that rugby. got stuck up there rugby. because you you can you can look through the mountains towards the direction where they were and you think that would suck like there is nothing out there because before my, my wife had read the book a long time ago and she would tell me about it a lot i think she read it twice and i would think well can't you just walk down but you look out there and it's just dead snow like not live snow just dead snow What's and the difference? they What's the difference? well live snow like turns into things that like create life so like i would call that you know snow patches that melt that feed into streams that water meadows that turn into trees and so normally in california or colorado you're at the top of the mountain you see that stuff but at the top of this it's like outer space all you see is like glacial snow that's been there a long time that is not sustaining life i mean the glaciers are carving out of the mountain And there's a lot of, I mean, the water is like, I wouldn't say polluted is the right word, but the water is not pure as soon as it's melted. Like there's so much like weird minerals. Again, I was saying like, I would drink that sulfur water. There's like the water is deep, dark brown within, you know, 200 feet of coming off the glacier. And before that, it's all sorts of weird colors. So like nothing really is life sustaining at all. So it's it's different. Like the other kind of weird thing about it is just the like when you're way up there, if the sun is fully out and it's shining on you and it's all good, it might feel like it is 60 degrees, right? If there's no wind. The wind comes and not does not feel like that. But as soon as like the tiniest cloud covers the sun. you're instantly at zero or less. Like your nose is cold. If it's exposed, you see your breath and it, it can happen in seconds. So like the the constant temperature fluctuations are, I, I would, it definitely made me think about like the space station was like super hot on one side and super cold on the other side. So yeah, it it, it felt like a lot like I imagine outer space. Okay. So do you think it's the pollution that make the snow so brown and dirty? No, there's no like human pollution up there. It's just raw. It's just everything is, it feels like the earth is just being formed and created. It almost feels like a pre-life earth, like pre-microbes. Like, um, no, it's just the stuff coming out of the, the rock. Again, and the Sierra is way up high. It's granite and it's, It's pretty solid and clean. This this would have a lot of like, I mean, I don't even. It's not dirt. But I don't know what it is, but the water is almost undrinkable. So it would they they would say don't drink the water raw. You have to put something in it, like tang or tea. So I mean, if you try and drink it water, it's it's not quite brackish, but it is kind of like trying to drink salt water. It's um it's really hard to get down. Okay. Oh, gosh. Now, would you plan to climb another huge, cold, dangerous mountain again? Well, I I mean, I, I again I said I want to get my family to go up Kilimanjaro because my my son says nobody's heard of Aconcagua. It doesn't mean anything. 
which is something he would say. Um, and now he's like, he's like semi flirting with the idea of going up Everest. I what? told him it would be really cold, but he, he likes doing hard things. I, I said, if, if he wants to do it in the next three or four years, I'd do it with him. But other than that, no. Again, Everest, I feel, is just randomly dangerous from from traffic jams. So, uh, well, I, that's too much, really. Uh, if this, I don't feel a sense of joy from what you described. I don't feel a sense of right. Uh, so, were there any moments? that was poetic and inspirational you said oh this is beautiful whatever can you recall those moments of beauty and inspiration and say oh the glacier oh the universe the milky way this is so grand the stars were cool but that was that was really low that was when we were at eleven thousand feet when we could go out in the night and see stars uh -huh. after that it was too cold uh -huh. um no, but I don't think that's the point. I mean, it is different. It is different from hiking regular mountains. I mean, when they when they call it like an expedition, it is is qualitatively different from backpacking. Like my favorite place that in in the world where you know I I took the kid earlier and I I was taken earlier. Like I cannot walk through there without being in tears. Like for most of it. Like it is super, super poetic, inspirational, and the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. This is different. I mean, the beauty is stark. It's danger beauty. It's raw, but it's not. It's not not life affirming. Again, there, there is no life there. What strikes you most is really not so much death as in pre life. It it feels like it is in a pre life state. So, I mean, I did walk outside of my tent really early in the morning, one morning, around seven in the morning at Camp Two, and I just walked around alone for about an hour um, before the sun came up to feel what it was like to be that cold. And then I found this little cave in this nook of this rock, which there, I guess the condors have a nest in there. And I just kind of huddled in there against the wind and watched the sun come up. And I would watch it go across the rocks and the snow and try and see how long it would take to get to me. And I would feel myself like slowly freezing. And I, mean, I just kind of wanted to see what that felt like. Um, I would say it was just, it's not the awe-inspiring beauty that you feel in normal mountains. Even that, which is I think as close as I got, it was it was still you look across things and you think if I were there, I'd be dead. If I were over there, I'd be dead. Like everywhere I am, the only thing that's keeping me alive is like all the duck feathers that are covering me stuck into my jackets and pants and stuff. Right. And without all these artificial means, just be dead like everything else on this mountain. So it's, it's different. I mean, the whole, the point though is really more about exploring and persevering i think and thinking about the people that originally climbed this thing you know when it would have been even way harder right and kind of following like an exploring type of path so i would say it's more more about 
pushing where life goes more than it is about everything is so beautiful and inspiring. So it's a different, it's a different purpose, I'd say. You're testing the limits of the survivability. Uh, yeah. Yes. And when you come down to this normal life, quote unquote, whatever normal means on earth with family at sea level, do you appreciate something a whole lot more? Mm. The most notable thing, first of all, in Mendoza, and I, I think my phone's going to die here soon, so it'll be quick. Um, the first thing I did was I ate 20 scoops of ice cream, three milkshakes, two steaks, and three pizzas, two days in a row. So um, the appreciation that ice cream there is a dollar a scoop, and, and they have at least seven different chocolates is phenomenal. I'd say the other amazing thing to feel was just to feel the sun on your back and the sun coming through the atmosphere to like touch your body and warm it gently was so pleasant, you know, rather than the sun is trying to either kill you by burning you to death or by freezing you to death when the clouds are covering it. So the sun is like life bringer was definitely very noticeable instead of a star out of sp outer, outer space. So, um, yeah, that th those were the the big thing. Food was very important. I got back um, being clean. It's, it was up there, but food was important. But yeah, really, just being able to walk outside and and you know, know things are not trying to kill you was, was pretty good. Okay, so what what are the most memorable things from this adventure? Most memorable? I think the group dynamics um, and getting our group to solidly gel was, was memorable. I mean, some of us will be friends for a long time. I think the, again, the terribleness of the guides was very memorable in a, in a bad way. I will always remember that morning I woke up and walked around alone um, because I deliberately decided to get out of my tent when it was dark and cold and put on as many clothes as I could and see what it felt like to be alone way out there. And so I walked to where I could see nobody and um, spent a good hour, maybe an hour and a half by myself, um, just watching, watching the world get touched by light slowly so that that's those are probably my, and i mean the last few hours of getting up the top where everything was just going wacky i mean that's that's very memorable but, but pleasantly memorable was my um my solo solo experience because you felt the utter helplessness of being one person there subject to death yeah, and just, you know, you, you feel your vulnerability and you could feel yourself slowly getting colder and, you know, you wait for the sun because, you know, when it hits you, it's going to be okay. You're like, okay, like my body is telling me I have an hour, two hours left of life at this temperature. I'm looking at it like the sun looks like it's going to hit me in 30 minutes, so I'm going to be okay. So it's, I was kind of interesting, but um 
Yeah, just choosing to go out there because again, energy is expensive. Choosing to do you don't do anything unnecessary. Literally, like you you don't walk anywhere unnecessary if it's more than a minute or two to like maybe go to the bathroom and that's poop. You don't walk that far for peeing. So to choose to walk and to spend that energy, it was was actually a big decision. Just choose even to get out of the tent was a big decision. So I was, I was glad I made that decision and um and and spent that time. The experiment, what is it like uh, of a frozen to death before you are dead? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That gave you the appreciation of life and give you yeah. the appreciation of people and community and friendship. Yeah. And um the the technology and clothes that keep us keep us alive. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Lessons. What lessons you take away? Uh, I mean, this is the biggest lesson, the biggest mistake that I will avoid. Uh, what are the lessons you have learned from this? Um, be friendly. So, I mean, everything depends on people in general in life. Yeah. Like when things are going good, may be less dependent when things are going bad always dependent so just like even in your job if you're trying to make money like if things are going good you don't maybe need people as much but if things are going bad say you're like fired unexpectedly and and you have tons of hospital bills whatever you need people like just being on your own as an autonomous individual is not going to get you through the bad stuff you know but if you're always in a place where it's always good and easy and you and you you can become very like self-centered and think that you can solve all problems by yourself but um badness always requires people yeah. so i mean i've known that before but it just you know hits you again in this things like this where group dynamics are important and then you see the people who have never experienced that before and you know do not understand that they need these people that they're mistreating. So um, you asked me about lessons. I guess that that would be a main lesson. Just, yeah, friendship in general. Like I've made random friends throughout my years and it's just been the best thing ever. You know, it has it has supported my life and interests well beyond what I, I thought it would have. <laughs> but at a on the other hand, you, the guides, I mean, they must be sadistic, uh, sick people because what they're doing to you guys is endangering your lives, basically. And they couldn't care. So yeah. So that's the, the other the other side of the coin of humanity. You know, we have this, the good side and we have this evil side. And yeah, but if you ever read Seawolf, I mean, this when I read Seawolf for the first time, I was very impressed by uh, there. There's some like, is it like the cabin boy on the boat and like the the sea captain sends him up to do to up the top of the mast to do something dangerous, sends him up to the task to do something dangerous and stupid and just for his own pleasure really. And like one of the, the people on the boat said like, "Why are you doing this kid?" Like, well, it's like nobody cares about this kid. Like he has no parents. So if he's dead, his parents don't care because they're dead. And if he's dead, he's dead. So he doesn't care. And none of us care. So like, what does it matter? And I, th I think, you know, 
some section of humanity does feel like this fairly like other people they're, they're not related to you they've seen a lot of things already and if you've if you've gone through a lot of trauma in your life already and you've seen a lot of death then, then what does it matter if somebody you're guiding up this thing dies or not like how long is it going to bother them for like not and like our guide would actually brag about how many people have died on his expedition. So I think he was inducing it. Just like in, there was that case recently where like that nurse was in that neonatal thing and like really enjoyed telling parents that their babies had died and would actually was killing them and then telling parents so they could see the reaction. I mean, I think sometimes people gravitate towards these high risk things and then kind of exercise their their feelings of domination in that scenario so you you have to be aware you know you might end up with the sadists or narcissists in in this group is they're going to gravitate towards that just like child molesters will gravitate towards something certain jobs and you know sadists and they're gonna gravitate towards you know people in difficult situations so yeah just i'd say be aware that's a possibility i don't think it's super common i think we kind of got bad luck but um yeah I, you, survived. you survived you persevered you returned yeah it became clear early on that you had to look out for yourself that nobody was it's not a babysitting trip you know, so if you need extra food and you're hungry, you have to go find it. And whether that's finding it where somebody else is eating or something like that, I had to do plenty of times. So, yeah, don't don't relinquish your your control over your life yes. and just assume that somebody else actually is cares at all because they might not. Wow. This is profound. Okay. This is so naked truth told in the most understated way. Don't relinquish your control over your own life. Just assuming someone else cares because they don't. But at well, the same might time, not. Yeah, it might not. But at the same time, there is such thing as human bonding friendship that sustains yeah. our life, helping each other and that is also blessed by God in our heart. At the same time, there is the satanic dark forces in humanity, you know, and you gotta yeah. look Yeah, you gotta look out. And that 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 contrast was actually fascinating to see during this walk, you know, to seeing how we bonded together against I mean, you had both the mountain, but I would say the guides were worse than the mountain in terms of causing difficulty. Um, but yeah, I mean, to see again, like that dynamic and how, how it changed how we bonded and who was in charge versus if it had been different situation was, I mean, it's fascinating for me. I, that's like my favorite thing to, to think about ever since like elementary school is seeing how groups of people bind together. A lot of it is because I mean, I was very unsocial in elementary school and I was trying to figure a way out. Like, how did I go from unsocial me to social like these other kids? And so I just watched them.
Um, so yeah, it was, yeah, seeing the different sides of humanity, like we were extremely kind to each other, except for the one very spoiled person in our group. And um, the guides were extremely not kind to us. So the, the things we would do for each other were pretty remarkable, actually. Um, and the things that the guides would not do for us was pretty remarkable. <laughs> so yeah, the contrast was pretty interesting. Wow. Oh, last question I ask everybody I interview. Okay. So if you could use about five words or less to describe your personal brand, like what does the Gary Middlemiss brand stand for? What would you use? Hmm. That, that's a tough question. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good at <laughs> Okay. Self-description. I would say I'm still introverted. Um, so I'll keep with that word. But um, you are audaciously, uh, but also you you take calculated risk, don't you? Yeah, but that's not the same as introverted. I, I, I'm not risk averse. I am risk accepting. That's for sure. Introverted, it's more like if I have to talk to more than three people a day, I, I get exhausted. And if it's more than five people, I have to be alone for like a day. Like I, I recharge by being alone. I, I do not. I might like being around people, but it's still exhausting. So I'd say introverted. Um, risk accepting. I, I like risk when, when the reward is acceptable. Um, I'd say I'm pretty romantic. Um, <laughs> yes, would be a word with music. <laughs> oh shoot! Oh my god! 